We're going through Judges chapter 3. Judges chapter 3. So I'll wait for you all to turn there. Judges chapter 3. Before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, we, uh, for, if you're new, we've been uh, going through verse-by-verse uh, verse, uh, expository study of the book of Judges. We're taking a look at uh, a number of judges. And if you're wondering who the judges are, uh, Israel was delivered out of bondage in Egypt. They followed Moses. They ended up uh, right uh, at the entrance to the promised land. Moses couldn't go in. Uh, Joshua led them in, Caleb. They entered into the promised land, had victory, um, started to flourish there. Joshua dies, and at that point, there was no king in the land. Judges says that in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It also says that at that time... The generation who remember what the Lord had done had passed, and this new generation had no clue. And so really what you have is a generation that has not grown up with an understanding of the Lord, similar to our day and age. Um, we, we talk about the millennials. We talk about the, uh, the baby boomers, X generation, Y generation. X generation was the first generation in America that was taught completely evolution, and the Bible was completely removed from their education. So they have been raised completely secular. The Y generation is exponentially so. And now we're at a point in in the history of our nation where uh, God has been removed from our vernacular. It used to be things like, uh, you'd say, the writings on the wall. Well, that is a term, a biblical term out of Daniel. And, And our culture was driven by these, you know, you can't change the spots of a leper. These were all biblical phrases that that were the vernacular of our culture because the Word of God dwelt here. Uh, For years, you couldn't get public funding unless you taught the Bible. For years, uh, the the only textbook in America up until the 1930s was what was called the New England Primer, Um, and that is all Scripture. It's fascinating. The Northwest Ordinance, you could not receive government assistance unless you taught morality in the Bible. It's in the Northwest Ordinance. That was for all the states, uh, you know, the, the further you went. Uh, north and west of of the the current colonization that we had as an early nation. So um, the Bible says that that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of our founding fathers, and he was also overseeing education, public education, he said the minute that you remove the Bible from schools and the education of a child, morality will implode. And so what we've seen since 1954, uh, when we've removed prayer from schools and the studying of Scripture, um, you know, we've had an increase in teen pregnancies, sexually transmitted diseases, abortions, drug addiction. Um, heroin addiction is epidemic proportions. Right here in our own Conejo Valley, we're struggling. And it's this absence of God and, and a young person trying to figure out who they are. You saw these four young people up here talking, finding their identity in Christ and their purpose for life. I'm going on mission trips. I'm, I'm going with my father. I, I, I see my purpose in life. I've learned more about the Lord in this last year. They're not getting that at school. And in a lot of cases, some of these kids aren't even getting it at home. And so in, in the void, this vacuum we've created, uh, our children are rudderless. They have no foundation. And so we're watching as we have, we've been responsible for creating this monster and we decry its existence. And that's just simply the removal of God from the center of our life. And really what it says in Judges is, is they, they forgot God. It doesn't mean that they, oh, where did he, who? It means that they put him aside. He wasn't the center of their life anymore, which is true of our culture today. We're in what's called a postmodern world. And as a result, we're imploding and we're reaping what we were sowing. And um, as a matter of fact, today I, I'm doing the baccalaureate for Newberry Park High School. And uh, I got an email from one of the administrators there saying, well, we have to change it. We can't do an invocation and a benediction because of the separation of church and state. Um, and, and, and this is where they are. And I was, I was talking with the principal of another school here in the Conejo 
And I said, are you guys in the same boat? He said, we are. And I just don't know that the general populace or even the, the church itself could handle that fight. Because really there's, there's an apathy and there's not a willingness to engage and defend those inalienable rights. And we've already gone through the First Amendment and looked at that. And so here we are. We're, we're watching as everyone seems to do what's right in their own eyes. We have no absolutes, no foundation. Our children are educated with thinking that they're a cosmic accident uh, by you know, evolution, chance, and uh, they've evolved. And there's, you know, there's monkeys that are going, don't blame what they're doing on us. You know, it's a, so we're, we're in a struggle. And, and now we come to a place where Israel did, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They just kind of situational ethics. And, and last week we took a look at a guy by the name of Othniel who took on Cushan uh, Rashatham, uh, after Israel had been oppressed for eight years under imprisonment and slavery. And that's really what happens when you remove the Lord. We realize if we're creating the image of God and certain inalienable rights endowed by our creator, as we neglect that creator, we lose those rights. And we, we no longer know where they come from. And so what happens now in a man-centered government, those rights come from those who are in power as opposed to coming from God. And as we as Christians don't open men and women's eyes to the fact that these rights come from God. They're ours. They're inalienable. We have to defend them. Instead, when we become silent, we don't educate generations. Then those who are in authority then set the rules, and they declare what is right and what is wrong. And what happens is we become enslaved to this this group of men and women who, who believe that they better rule us than we can rule ourselves. And they take away our freedoms. Our taxation increases. And we've gone through that. And, and Steve pointed out as a business owner, and when this $15 an hour minimum wage goes through, he's going to have to let go of workers. Um, and, and we're watching as this is happening in our state. And, and God, in those moments, when people finally get tired enough, and we saw last week, Othniel, eight years they waited and they cried out to the Lord. They waited eight years, eight years before they cried out to the Lord under enslavement and oppression. It just wasn't bad enough. And then they cried out, well, uh, Othniel, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And the way that men and women rise up to make a difference is the Spirit of the Lord, number one. It's not by might nor by power, but by His Spirit, says the Lord. Secondly, they have a love for the Word of God. They understand it to be the Word, which is true. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And the idea is, it says in Hebrews 4.12, that, that God's Word is a double-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and the intents of the heart, separate the bone from the marrow. It pierces us. It's the only book in the world where we don't read it, it reads us. And then if we yield ourselves, we become alive to his word. His word is already living, but we come alive to his word. And it changes cultures, changes worlds. And so at this moment, not only did we see with Othniel that the spirit of the Lord came upon him, but today we're going to see the word of God um, in in an illustrative format as to how it changes a culture. So please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Judges chapter 3, we're going to pick up at verse 12. It's one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. It's very graphic. I'm giving you fair warning. Um, It would probably get an R rating. uh, And if this bothers you, just plug your ears. All right, verse 12. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Sounds familiar? So the Lord strengthened Eglon king of Moab against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Then he gathered to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel. 
and took possession of the city of Palms. And by the way, the city of Palms is what, what we know of as Jericho, the walls of Jericho. He didn't rebuild the walls. He just set up his palace there. And they've actually found the ruins of his palace in the last three years. And so he set up his palace, Eglon did, in the city of Palms, which is Jericho. Um, so the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab. Are you ready for this? Eighteen years. We'll get to that in a moment. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger, and it was double-edged. Everyone say double-edged. double-edged. It was double-edged and a cubit in length, which is about 13 inches, and fastened it under his clothes, under his right thigh. So he brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now Eglon was a very, not just fat, he was a very fat man. Uh, scholars believe that he had a 300-inch waistline. I'm fighting 38 inches. I'm good. Uh, matter of fact, they actually, archaeologically, they've discovered, um, they've discovered a picture of him. I, I think we have it here. Do we? Yeah, there it is. Yeah. That's Jabba the Hutt, Star Wars, in case you're wondering. Okay. We're good. Thanks. So Eglon was a very fat man, and when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the stone images that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him went out from him. So Ehud came to him, and now he was sitting upstairs in the cool private chambers. I'll explain that later. Then Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. So he rose from his seat, and then Ehud reached with his left hand, left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh and then thrust it into the belly of Eglon. Even the hilt, which is the handle of the knife, the hilt went in after the blade and the fat closed over the blade for he did not draw the dagger out, but he left it in his belly and the entrails came out and the smell of the entrails. I'm adding this. You can feel it. Okay, we're going to do sensory. So set the smell. Click it. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So he locks the front door and jumps out the window. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber, meaning he's using the restroom because the smell. And so they waited till they were embarrassed and, and he had not opened the doors of the upper room. Therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed beyond the stone images and escaped to Sarah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet, the shofar, in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains, and he led them. And then he said to them, follow me, for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, everyone say Moabites, into your hands. And so they went down after him, seized the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab, did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor. They were big like their king. Uh, I would have been a member of the Moabite. (laughs) Uh, Not a man escaped because they couldn't outrun the Israelites. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land, here we go, and the land, here we go, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word and we thank you for this time together. And Lord, uh, an interesting passage, but I know you have something for us as a congregation and as a people. And Lord, as graphic as it is, there's much you have to share with us. And so Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth and we pray your ministry upon our lives. 
And Lord, cause us to come alive to your living word. And we thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. So the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. So Othniel dies. There was peace in the land for 40 years. And then they return as a dog, as a man returns to his sin, so a dog returns to its vomit, right? And went right back to it, removed God from the center of their life, and went back to the indulgences of the flesh. And in doing this, um, and, and what we see is, we become a slave to that which we worship. As Christians, we're slaves to righteousness. When we put God to the side, we become enslaved to our passions, and uh, oftentimes cultures will just turn those passions into gods or goddesses. Bacchus was the Roman god of alcohol. Instead of saying, I'm a drunk, oh, no, I just worship Bacchus. Instead of saying, I'm addicted to pornography, no, 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 I just worship Aphrodite. And so we turn these addictions into gods or goddesses, and we see the power they have over our life, and we become enslaved to them. And, and addiction runs rampant in our world today, and it's probably in the room in a large portion sins that easily beset us and we're slaves to them. And we continue to do this evil and we think, well, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? And we got our get out of hell free card. So, I mean, you know, I'm saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So, I mean, you know, I can have my cake and eat it too. And so I'm saved and why not just, you know, it's just a little sin and I'm not sinning as much. I mean, it's three times a week instead of five. And, and so we justify this thing and we become fat on immorality. And God is no longer the center of our life. And then it translates into secondary cultures, secondary generations. And we watch as our children become further and further away from the Lord. And our culture does. And we lose these inalienable rights and this idea that we're created in the image of God. And and all of a sudden we find ourselves enslaved to a government that's ever increasing and getting bigger. And when a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, we're looking saying, well, there's nothing left to leave my kids because they've taken it all. And, and, and we're finding that here we are in California and we have the highest abortion rate of any, any state in the nation. 65 million babies dead in this country since 73. We lead the nation. And we, we drive by probably Planned Parenthood a couple times a day and we don't think much of it. And we're looking at an election coming up. It's going to be the most contentious. And we're, we're looking at this and we're thinking, my goodness, one of the candidates believes in third trimester abortion, which our president does, where the baby is partially aborted to the head, the skull is broken, the brains are sucked out, and then the baby's delivered dead. It's graphic, I agree. And some of you are saying, why did you do that? Well, because that's what occurs legally in our country. And our president backs it, and one of the candidates does as well. But it doesn't affect me. I've got my upper and my lower springs like Othniel, and I, I don't need to be bothered with that. And it's almost like, you know, the, the Christians in Germany, when the rail cars of Jews would go by on a Sunday and they'd be screaming of thirst, uh, and the Christians would hear the moaning of the Jews in the rail cars, they would just sing louder to drown out the noise. Just sing louder. And so we're watching as this is happening, we're being enslaved to a government. And Eglon gets bigger, and we become smaller, and the greater the, 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 greater the government, the smaller the citizen. And so... All this is happening, and, and they're doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And it was actually the Lord who strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Who appoints all positions of authority, according to Romans 13? Is God, the Lord. He, he appoints all positions of authority. And actually, we get what we deserve. The only thing we can cry out for now as Americans is mercy. Listen, <clears throat> the blood of these children cries out. We're guilty. We, we may dismiss it and call it a choice and dismiss it and... 
write it off, but the reality is we're accountable. We're accountable for the $19 trillion of debt we've left the generations to come. Righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children, so it's not a debt of $19 trillion. California, $1.5 trillion. We're a consumer-driven culture, and we run debt. We don't think about following generations. And so we become enslaved. A, a, a borrower is a slave to the lender. And this is what's happening to our culture. And the Lord actually strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. Eglon. And now this is, the scripture says he's a very fat man. And he sets up his palace in, in, in the city of Palms, Jericho, in the outskirts of Jericho, in the destroyed walls. And Jericho was, by a mighty hand of God, the walls were turned down as they blew trumpets and declared that God is great. And the walls came down, and the Israelites had victory and uh, occupied the promised land. And now they've allowed sin to come back into a territory that rightfully belongs to God. And they allow a king that has a 300-inch waistline to sit there and rule over them and enslave them. And you think, you know, Othniel, the, the, the children cried out for eight years. And you're like, who would endure that for eight years? Well, we've endured... Uh, a president for eight years, right? And, 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 and here, the early returns of the early voting, conservatives aren't voting. He, he's got an uphill battle. We're looking at, at supervisory races. Conservative Christians aren't voting. Well, I, I, how, how much longer? How much more oppression do you want? What's going to wake us up? We go, well, it, it, we're not going to get eight more years of it. Something, oh, I'll, I'll tell you what, it, it, it's going to be a tough road. We may have eight more years of the same. And it'll be worse. Worse. And nothing moves us. And we're thinking eight years, they cried out to the Lord. They, they, they waited eight years under enslavement and oppression. I remember we were talking about Jonah in the belly of the whale. After three days in the belly of the whale, he cried out. I would have cried out the minute I crossed the teeth of that beast. But he sat in the belly of that whale with the pre-digestive juices. It was actually fish or whale shark. Pre-digestive juices, partially consumed fish. He's getting that skin peel. He's going deep depths and coming up. His ears are popping. Finally, after three days, he cries out. And we're like, what is it? Guy's crazy. Eight years. What are they crazy? Now we get to this place where it says 18 years. They served under the hand of this oppressor, Eglon. You think that Kusha Rushathaim was bad, and his name means dark and exponentially evil, and we saw that with Othniel. Let me tell you a little bit about Eglon, king of the Moabites. This is the culture that really developed human sacrifice. They took it to a whole new level. They were Molech. They were the ones that got us Molech. Molech... The Moabites created Molech, and it was this god that had you know, bronze hands that they would heat to a molten level, and they would take their infant child, put him on the hands of this molten-handed god, and burn their child for the sake of financial prosperity. We go, oh, that's ridiculous. How awful. 65 million babies, inconvenient, and plus we need their parts. I mean, you know, this is a little graphic, Pastor. okay. We, we, sunshine? I mean, it's a reality. And this is Moab. This is Eglon, king of the Moabites. Let me tell you a little more about the Moabites. Eglon, he's the king of them. And fat on immorality. And, and the whole conception of this man is vile. But before I share with you about Eglon, king of the Moabites, let me tell you a story about a man who's in the New Testament that has an interesting moniker. I would be blessed to have my name in the New Testament 
with the word righteous next to me, not once, not twice, but three times. Pretty fascinating, right? Three times the scripture calls him righteous. It's in 2 Peter chapter 2. It says, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly and delivered, and his name was Lot, delivered righteous Lot. That's really cool, righteous Lot. Righteous means right with God, you know, right standing with God, righteous Lot. and puts his name there, righteous Rob. I'm in. And doesn't just call him righteous Lot, but it says in verse 7, delivered righteous Lot who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked for that righteous man, righteous Lot, righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul. He was a righteous Lot, righteous man, righteous soul. And his soul was tormented by the evil doings of those who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah because he lived there. He was the nephew of Abraham. And he, he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he was oppressed day in and day out by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Sodom and Gomorrah, we know what that is. It's a vile place, and it's, it's known. That those words alone just connotate sin, sin, sin. And the scripture says that he dwelt among them and tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing of the lawless deeds. And then the Lord, it says in Second Peter, knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to deliver the righteous out of temptation. And, and we read about righteous lot, righteous man, righteous soul. Wow, who is this guy? We need to emulate him. Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, I want to know who this guy is. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Well, if righteous lot, righteous man, righteous soul, I want to imitate him. Let's see who he is because this guy needs to be followed. Genesis 19 brings us to who Lot is. It says that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but he sent two angels because Abraham prayed. He sent two angels to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, which means he's a city council member. He really, he was a keeper of the gate, sat there to rule. When the, when Lot saw these two angels, he rose to, to meet them. He bowed himself, his face to the ground. He said, here now, my Lords, turn into your servant's house, spend the night with me, wash your feet. Then you may rise early and be on your way. And they said, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. He insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered in his house and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. And so he's still observing Jewish customs and still honoring the Lord. And he's got a faith in God and and uh, here he is living in a godly home in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and, and it's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And, and we all have our get out of hell free card. Everyone say amen. Because we're saved by, by faith. Saved by grace through faith. And, and that's not of works. We don't earn it. God gives it to us and we receive that by faith. And, and Lot had a saved soul. He's righteous. He's right with God. Abraham believed God has accredited him as righteousness. Lot believed God has accredited him as righteousness. So let's, let's hear more about this wonderful man, Lot. So he bakes bread for these um, angels. Verse 4, now before they lay down for the night, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Where are we going with this? Let's see. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind them to keep the angels inside. And he says, men, please, please, my brethren, brethren. <laughs> I'm hanging out with Sodom and Gomorrah, and these are my brethren. Brethren, please don't do so wickedly. See, I have two daughters who have never known a man. They're virgins. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since the, this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. What? Come on. 
This is vile. Mm. How could God call a man like that righteous? I don't know. How could he call someone righteous who drives by Planned Parenthood every day and does nothing? I don't know. I don't know. How could God call him righteous and allow? I, I don't know. We allow our children to see a thousand murders a year on television. I don't, I don't know how God could call them righteous. We call it entertainment. Adultery, fornication, pornography, the stuff, the filth that we see on the internet. I don't know how God could call us, oh, I'm sorry, right, uh, lot righteous. I don't know. But it certainly makes us feel better to see him and decry that. It is vile. And I'm shocked by it, as are you. But isn't it amazing how our sin looks so much worse on somebody else? We have a heroin epidemic in our culture. But you can't pray in schools. There certainly isn't going to be an invocation nor a benediction. And I am sick of it. I am very upset. Good. What are you doing about it? Well, I'm not voting, but I'm very upset. Mm. And they said, stand back. And then they said, this one came in to stay here and keeps acting as he's a judge. So at least he had some morality and a foundation. He tried to tell him, that's wrong. Who are you to tell me? It's situational ethics. There's no God. There's no absolutes. Two plus two is three. There's no absolutes. There's no moral foundation. I can do as I please. And if I can get enough people to shout you down and, and then you're going to yield and, and we're going to give you an A because you say two plus two is three and you've got all of the people with you yelling and demanding it and so we're going to give that to you and we're going to pass all of our children and they're not going to know math and the buildings they build are going to collapse and we're reaping what we've sown. He says, we're going to, they said, we're going to do worse with you than with them. How dare you stand away? And they threaten him. And the angels strike them blind and they're all lost and he closes a door and then the, the angel said to Lot in verse 12, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place for we're going to destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of our Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Anyone that, that is part of your family, get them out. The hell's coming down. So Lot went out, I should say heaven's coming down on hell. So Lot went out and spoke to his son-in-laws. Hey guys, you got to get out of here. These angels, they're going to destroy everything. Uh, and you're the guys that married my daughters. I need you to get out. They said, get up, get out of this place, he says, for the Lord will destroy the city. But his son-in-laws looked at him and they, they, they thought he was joking. What's up with you, old man? What, you got all religious on us? His son-in-laws. I mean, how many of you have given your daughter away in marriage? And the first question you ask of the suitor that came is, uh, what kind of financial uh, are you going to be able to provide for her? I'm sorry, what? What is your walk with the Lord like? How will my children be raised in love and the admonition of the Lord, my grandchildren? Do you love the Lord? Tell me where you go to church. Oh, you've got a good job. Mm, yes, yes, yes. What do you drive? I can see what you wear. You, mm, mm-hmm. Amen to that. And so we find that no one believes him. So the angels grab Lot's wife, grab him, his two virgin daughters. They run out of the city. And we know what happened with Lot's wife. She looks back and goes, oh, the Nordstrom's is burning. <laughs> and she's turned into a pillar of salt <laughs> with her hand pointing to Nordstrom's. 
Today it's missing because the cows, they lick her. Salt lick. And Lot gets away and he gets up into the hills and, and, he, and he, he, he survives the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and they watch it burn and they're up in the hill in, in this cave. And this is where we come to the point of the message. Pay attention. Lot went up out of Zoar, dwelt in the mountains. Righteous Lot, righteous man, righteous soul. He dwelt in the mountains with his two daughters and they were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. And now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. Now, you can't blame the kids because they weren't raised. They're the X and Y generation. Uh, they get more teaching on evolution than they do in church. And the only time they ever hear about God is one hour when you bring them to church and maybe if you crack a Bible at home. So don't be surprised at what the daughters say here. This is what they're talking about at school. This is their generation. And, and um, two daughters were with him, and one daughter, and he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. And the firstborn said to the younger sister, Our father is old, and there's no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So she's saying, Let's sleep with our dad. We're going to have incest. So they made their father drink wine that night, made him. Yeah. I really care. Okay. I really shouldn't, but I will. Oh, it's a disease. Yeah, it's a disease where you got to remove the cork and drink it. Just sharing. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine again tonight. Hair of the dog to bitch you. What do you say, Pop? Those of you who just want to be friends with your kids, you want to party with them? Good. Good example. And so they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose, and thus both of the daughters were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. So now Israel gets to reap what they sowed. And this immoral king has enveloped all the children of Israel in the bondage of slavery. The slavery of immorality. We become fat on it. We become fat on it. Come to a place of complacency. And it's awful. And the addictions that are represented in the body of Christ... Why do we wait so long? Why do we wait so long when we become addicted to patterns of sin? We just dabble in them. Probably because we're afraid or ashamed. We don't want to face the reality of the ugliness of it all. I wonder if those that work for the beer companies and the hard liquor companies, if they have pictures of mothers against drunk driving of the children that were killed in the manufacturing places. My mother died of lung cancer. Just think about how ugly sin is. Sin is pleasurable for a season. It's pleasurable for a season, but the end therein is death. 
Maybe we feel like we're going to lose something. And we've really brought it to a place where it's seasonally enjoyable. But we have eyes watching us. And they're thinking, well, mom and dad don't think it's that bad. Why should I? And generationally and incrementally, we just put God aside. Maybe we're content to remain where we are and our misery becomes comfortable. I don't have a drinking problem. I drink, get drunk, fall down, no problem. I drink because I'm Irish. God invented whiskey to stop the Irish from ruling the world. Everybody sins and falls short of the glory of the Lord. Abraham sinned. He impregnated Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid. Ishmael was born. That's where we have the fight between uh, the Muslim world today, all descendants of Ishmael. Lot slept with his two daughters. He had Moab. Jacob lied to his father Isaac to get the birthright. King Saul disobeyed God and didn't kill the Amalekites. David sinned in numbering Israel. I, I just read that this morning in my devotion. We come to a place where we get comfortable with sin. And that's what happens here. Eglon, his name means round. Seriously. I mean, he's big. He's, he's hugantic. I mean, I, I was thinking about some of the things, the jokes, you know. Is, is, he's so big that the picture of himself fell off the wall, you know. That's kind of funny. <laughs> His baby picture had to be done with a satellite photo. He, he had his own zip code. When he put on his BVDs, they spelled Boulevard. When he sat around the house, he sat around the house. I'm just, I'm pointing out a 300-inch waistline. He was enormous. And, and, and he ruled in decadence. Of all of the public servants that you've spoken to, a handful understand what it's like to run a business, but the remainder know what it's like to drain a business and get fat on someone else's labor. And they know how to spend your money really well and get big. And they spend it. And here is Eglon getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger the government, the smaller the citizen. And the scripture says he was a very fat man. And 18 years they endured it. 18 years. And then it says, after 18 years, and we become more and more complacent, but after 18 years, they finally cried out to the Lord. And I would just simply say, is anybody upset by the fact that you can't do a benediction or an invocation at Newbury Park High School? How upset are you? I mean, really, how upset are you? Oh, good, so I can take the punishment. Thank you. Bless you, brother. I said, how upset are you? I appreciate you taking, because I was going to make fun of whoever did it, so thank you for my My point is, we can be very upset, but stepping forward to go into the arena is a whole different story. And all you got to do is pull a lever punch a card, mail it in. And they're not, when, Christians aren't doing it this election. And here, 18 years they endure it. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and God raised up a deliverer. We're still not at a place where we're crying out to God. Prayer is still not 
there. And watch this. Ehud, the son of Gerar, the Benjamite. Benjamite. Benjamin. Benjamin was born to Rachel. And, and, and um, you had Jacob, who had two wives, Leah and Rachel. And Rachel gave birth to Benjamin. And she did it, and she died in childbirth. And, and as she lay there dying, and, and Jacob was holding this baby in her arms, in his arms, Rachel, who was just so self-consumed, so, self, so self-centered, turns and says, Name him Benoni. Benoni means son of my sorrow. You let him know that he's responsible for me dying and let him live with it the whole rest of his life. And Jacob goes, no, Rachel, we're going to call him Benjamin. Not, not son of my sorrow, but son of my right hand. He's my little right-hand man. And, and the Benjamites, that was their term, little right-hand man, right next to the, to the, the, the father Israel. And, and with this picture, you see the son of Gerar. This is Ehud, the son of Gerar. He's a Benjamite, but, but ready? But he's a left-handed man. He's a left-handed man in a right-handed world. And actually, the, the term left-handed meant that he had a disability. It, 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 in, it infers that he, he had some sort of problem with his right hand, so he had to use his left hand. It was so uh, looked down upon in my mother's generation to be left-handed that my, my grandmother tied her hand behind her back and made her eat with her right hand. My mother, to her death, was ambidextrous. She could write with both hands. And, and every t- she said, every time I used my left hand, I felt guilty. I could hear my mother's voice. But in this case, it, it infers that he was crippled in his right hand. He was left-handed. He was a left-handed man in a right-handed world. And I just have to say, you know, if we're in trouble. Who's going to lead? And how long are we going to wait? 18 years? And in every, I, got, I got news for you. you. Everyone has a reason why they're not going to be the ones to go forward. Everybody has a reason. And so you're going, well, I, I'm disabled. I'm, I have special needs. I, 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 I got news for you. Everything that you use an excuse not to do it is just simply that. It's an excuse. There is a generation of people waiting to be delivered and looking for someone to stand. And we, we need this. We need people to make a difference. He's left-handed. And, and I think about Amy Carmichael who said, you know, she had prayed her whole life, God, my sisters, and she had seven sisters, and they all had beautiful green and blue eyes, and they were all Irish, and they're from Northern Ireland. And she was born with coffee, dark brown eyes. And she'd just say, God, why? I've got brown eyes, and everyone else has blue eyes. Please, God. And she'd pray every night, change my eyes to blue or change them to green. Please, God, please, God, please. She'd wake up, they'd still be brown. She'd, God, and she went on her way and sowed to the sinful nature and finally repented, came to Christ, became a missionary in India. And here she was coming covering her face with coffee uh, grounds to make it darker so that she could save these children from prostitution. And the only reason why they wouldn't stop her is because she looked like she was from India because her eyes were brown. And she was raised with brown eyes in a blue-eyed world, but God had plans for her in India. And God has plans for you and quit making excuses. Okay, Ehud was a left-handed man in a right-handed world, the Benjamites, and he had a disability. And we're going to use everything we can to deny God's calling on our life. No, no more excuses. If we're willing, God is able. And so he stands up and he goes to bring this tribute to Eglon. This tribute probably brought pizzas. I was thinking. And it says that he, he had this 13-inch dagger, double-edged, double-edged sword. And we find that in, in Hebrews 4.12, that God's word is 
a living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so he puts this sword on his right thigh, and he comes in, and they search him because everyone's right-handed. They search him for weapons, don't find one. He walks into the room. There's this massive job of the hut just sitting here, and it says this cooling chamber. What they did is they, they soaked these big sheets in water, and they put them up by the windows, and the breeze would come, and it'd be almost like an evaporative cooler because they didn't have that in those days. And he'd just be sitting there going, hey, bring me a goblet of something cool and refreshing. And he just, and he comes in and he comes to bring his tribute. What have you brought me now? Bring me a tribute. I need more of your business. I need more of your income. I need more of your children's lives. I want more influence. In the, bring me. And he goes, I got something for you. And he walks up and he lays out whatever tribute they were expecting. And he says, I have something special to tell you. He says, everybody out. What is it? He comes over and he stands up. Tell me what the secret is. He goes, here's the secret. And Ehud's like, is there anything you haven't eaten? Oh. And just keep the sword. I don't want it. Just pulls his. And he collapses on the ground. He jumps out the window, locks the door, jumps out the window, and off he goes. And he goes and he tells the children of Israel. He blows the trumpet. He says, follow me. The Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. Follow me. Follow me. Special needs, handicap. Follow me, a left-handed man in a right-handed world. Follow me. You know what? We're just looking for somebody who has guts. We're looking for somebody who has a spine. We're looking for somebody who's really sick of it. And they're not just going to say, I'm sick of it. They really want to do something. And here's the problem why we don't want to do something. The Bible says we're more strictly judged. Everything that man's ever done is going to be paraded for every mailbox in the district to read. And every one of us has a past. And we don't want to let go of our present because we really don't believe we're the ones to be used for the future. And if not you, then who? If not now, when? I, I, don't, I don't care who you are and what you're dealing with. His grace is sufficient in your time of weakness. I'll get ready for communion by sharing these last ideas. King David said in relation to his life when he saw the sinful nature of his life, and this is a man who had committed sins that there was no sacrifice in all of Israel for. He committed adultery and murder. He understood that all he could receive from God was mercy. And David wrote in Psalm 38, he said, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. God, I just don't think, I've been dealing with this sin for so long. God says, look, kill it. Kill it. You're paralyzed because you're fat on iniquity. Put it to death. Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. We're examining our life and, and revival begins in the house of the Lord and judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We look at our life. If God's going to use us, we have to, we have to be prepared to lead. And that means we got we to kill the egg in our own life. 
Job wrote in Job 4, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. It means that we're going to have to sacrifice portions of our life to be that public image that people can follow and trust. Galatians 6, 7, Paul wrote, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. The psalmist wrote, For those of you who see this table here before you, and this is the communion table, this is the body and the blood of Christ, represented that it was his body broken, his blood shed. And the reason why, as the psalmist says, in relation to our text this morning, Psalm 51.3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. Look, I get it. Look at the room. Everybody's got an eglon. We all see it. Quit, let it. quit allowing it to paralyze you. Quit tolerating it. Quit feeding it. Quit bringing it tribute. Kill it. Kill it. Enough is enough. It's not an affair. It's adultery. Enough. It doesn't help you get through the day. It's an addiction. It's pornography. It's wrong. Kill it. It's paralyzing you. You won't get up and do anything because you don't want to be found out. God wants to use you. But you're allowing the fat man of immorality to own you. Enough is enough. Kill it. Put it to death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. James writes, Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is fully formed, it brings forth death. You're not dabbling in sin. You're bringing it tribute, and ultimately it's going to kill you and oppress you and paralyze you. Kill it. Quit feeding it. Quit bringing it tribute. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. We know we're condemned. Kill it. Romans 7, for when we were in the flesh, the, the actions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth the fruit of death. Proverbs fourteen twelve. there's a way in which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Your family's imprisoned. You've been bringing sin tribute too long. Eglon's gotten fat and your family has been imprisoned. Kill it. Stop it. Sin causes the death of innocence. Sin causes the death of trust. Sin causes the death of friendship. Adultery will cause the death of a marriage. Gossip will cause the death of a reputation. Repeated sin will cause the death of a conscience. Sin can cause more harm to the one sinning than to the one sinned against. All sin is ultimately more against God than people. Sin is awful enough that the Bible tells us to consider ourselves dead to it and even to kill it. Romans 6.11 says, Likewise, reckon yourself also dead to sin, but alive to Christ. Romans 8.13, For if we live after the flesh, we will die. But if we live through the Spirit and we mortify, we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. And Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death the members of which are upon the earth, fornication and cleanness, evil, covetousness, which is idolatry. And Proverbs twenty-eight, thirteen. I'm almost finished. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes it shall have mercy. Quit bringing tribute to Eglon in your life. 
Look at sin as awful as it is and declare it to be dead. Are you willing to forsake it for the life that Christ has for you? Jesus' death on the cross and the shedding of his blood is the only antidote to the sin in your life to kill Eglon. Hebrews 9.22, all things are by the law purged with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. That's the penalty and it's awful, but Christ paid it. And we, we don't want to be like Lot, saved soul and a wasted life. We want to be like Abraham, a saved soul and a valuable life used to put to death Eglon. God longs today to wash away your sins. And this is the last verse, Isaiah 118. For those of you that this message has hit you square in the chest and, I, and, and the one behind this wooden structure, I already, I think I win that award. But if you've been hit and there's conviction, that's good. You're not condemned, you're convicted. Because if you're convicted, you realize it's wrong and you agree with God and God says to you out of Isaiah chapter one, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as white as wool. God says, I want to set you free. I want to cleanse you. Not just a saved soul, but a life worth living. That you can not only kill the Eglon in your life, but you can set the captives free. And you know what? When he killed Eglon, the children of Israel had peace for 80 years. 19 people in a church in Ripon, Wisconsin, in 1854, said that they were sick of slavery and not just wanting to say they were sick of it, they did something about it. They started a new party called the Republican Party. And by 1860, they had an influx in the House and the Senate and got a president elected by the name of Abraham Lincoln. 650,000 people died on a field of battle. That president got a bullet to the back of his head. But for the next 90 years, the Republicans dominated the political landscape because they were the party of character. They did what was right. And it was just 19 of them. One man in God constitutes a majority. Steve, I'm so proud of you. Thank you for running for office. We're going to renew our commitment to kill the Eglon and set the captives free. What Christ did for us, he gave us the power to overcome sin by the power of life in Christ Jesus. His body was broken. His blood was shed to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You don't have to pay tribute to Eglon anymore. Go out and set the captives free. Let the Lord minister to your heart. If you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's have the worship team come up. We'll take communion together. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this time. We thank you, God, for the picture that you've given us of putting Eglon to death in a sense. We don't have to bring him tribute anymore. You've come to set the captives free. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to all who are present. And that, God, we would see in our lives a renewed desire to want to stand for the truth, regardless of the consequences, because that is a life worthy to live. Help us, Lord, to help our children and our grandchildren to do what is right, that we'll no longer be paralyzed by the obesity of immorality. But, God, we put to death the sins of the flesh, that we would be set free and no longer paralyzed, that we would be able to serve you. And no more excuses. We may be left-handed men and women in a right-handed world. But God, you take the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. The foolish things of God to confound the wisdom of this world. And so, Lord, thank you.
Thank you for these men and women and their willingness. Bless them, empower them by your spirit and by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.